The Guardian. I'm sure that the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Private Martin Bell from the 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, who died last week in Helmand Province. He died a true hero, showing exceptional bravery and selflessness as he went to the aid of an injured colleague. It's clear from the tributes paid by those who served with him that he was a hugely respected and well-liked soldier. Our thoughts and our deepest condolences should be with his family, his friends and his colleagues. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. I thank the Prime Minister for those generous words about Private Bell because his battalion is based at the Colchester Garrison. A characteristic of the British way of life is its charities and its voluntary organisations. Does the Prime Minister share my concern that some local authorities and some health trusts are using their perceived cuts as an excuse to to make cuts, thus undermining voluntary organisations and charities with the big society concept. I absolutely share the Honourable Gentleman's concern, and I think he's right to air it. In the case of uh, the Department of Health, of course, there aren't cuts in the Department of Health budget. The health budget is going up. And it's very important that the Department of Health, as I know my right honourable friend uh, is doing so, actually does everything he can to try and protect the very important voluntary organisations working in that department. In terms of local government, yes, there are reductions in spending, as there would be, frankly, whoever was standing at this dispatch box. But I would urge local authorities to look first at their own costs. It's only when they can show they are sharing chief executives, they're cutting out their own bureaucracies, that they can then show that they need to make reductions reductions elsewhere and in some cases they're not yet being convincing. Miliband. Mr Speaker, first of all, can I join the Prime Minister in honouring the memory of Private Martin Bell from 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. He showed enormous bravery and dedication, as the Prime Minister said, and we send condolences to all his family and friends. Last weekend I saw for myself the bravery and commitment of our troops in Afghanistan and all of those involved in our wider effort there. I think, like everyone who visits, I came away with an overwhelming sense of admiration and humility, and I pay tribute to everyone who is based in Afghanistan. Can I start by asking the Prime Minister about the unfolding situation in Egypt? Uh, And can I ask him to update the House on the important issue of the security of British nationals? Can he inform us of the arrangements being made for those who want to return to the UK? Well, first of all, can I thank the right honourable gentleman for his generous tribute to our troops and for his visit to Afghanistan. I think it is very important that we go ahead in this difficult endeavour on a cross-party basis, and I praise him for what he said. In terms of uh, Egypt, of course, he's right. The first concern should be for our own UK nationals and for the situation that they're in. Of course, there are around 30,000 UK nationals in the uh, Red Sea area, which at the moment remains calm and stable, and we've not yet changed travel advice to that part of Egypt. In terms of the rest of Egypt, there are about 3,000 UK citizens in Cairo and around 300 in uh, Alexandria. Uh, In terms of making sure those that want to return can, and we've urged many to do so, there are still very good uh, commercial flights, and we have added 
uh, a flight commissioned by the British government, uh, and that in the last 48 hours, a thousand UK citizens have returned. I think the UK government and, uh, uh, has acted swiftly. We had a rapid deployment of 25 uh, special consular staff to, to Cairo. Uh, the military logistics team of eight was sent out immediately, and we were the first country to set up a team at the Cairo airport, which many other countries have gone on to uh, imitate. I don't take any of this for granted. There needs to be absolutely no complacency, but I think our ambassador, Dominic Asquith, and his team have done an excellent job and we should praise them. Uh, I'm grateful to him for that reply. Let me now ask him about the wider issues on Egypt. I, I think, Mr Speaker, everybody has been moved by the images we've seen on our screens in the last few days of hundreds of thousands of people against overwhelming odds demanding a more democratic future. Following President Mubarak's statement last night, can I ask the Prime Minister whether he agrees with President Obama that the stable and orderly transition to democracy must be meaningful, peaceful, and begin now. We absolutely take that view. The transition needs to be rapid and credible, and it needs to start now. And I think, as the Honourable Gentleman says, we should be clear. We stand with those in this country who want freedom, who want democracy and rights the world over. That should always be our view. And you can't watch the scenes in Cairo without finding it incredibly moving about people wanting to have those aspirations in Egypt as we have them in our country. Now, the government takes a very strong view that political reform is what is required, not repression. And we've made that clear in all the calls I've made, including to President Mubarak and yesterday the Egyptian Prime Minister. As the right hon. Gentleman says, the key question is, have they done enough? Now, President Mubarak says he is going, and we respect that, but what matters is not just the orderly transition, but also that it is urgent, it is credible, it starts now. And the more they can do with a timetable to convince people that it's true, the more I think the country can settle down to a stable and more democratic future. I think the whole House will uh, be pleased by the Prime Minister's answer and share the view he has uh, expressed. Isn't it also clear that far from indicating support for extremism, the people on the streets of Egypt are actually demanding some very basic things, jobs, freedom of speech uh, and the right to choose to whom, by whom they are government, governed? Now, we have a clear interest in stability in all countries in the region, but isn't it now apparent that the best route to stability in Egypt is precisely through democracy? I agree with that. I think that we should, we should take the view that the long-term interests of Britain are from a stable uh, Middle East and a stable Arab, Arab world. And we won't get that stability unless they make moves towards greater democracy. Where I think we need to be clear is that when we talk about greater democracy, we don't just mean the act of holding an election. We mean the building blocks of democracy. I want to see a partnership for open societies where we encourage stronger civil societies, stronger rights, stronger rule of law, a proper place for the army in society, proper independent judiciary. It's these things, the building blocks, that I think can give us a stronger, more stable, more democratic future that will very much be in our interests and theirs as well. Ed Miliband. I'm sure there is a consensus across the House on, on the points that he makes, uh, and I know he'll keep the House updated on the situation uh, in Egypt. I, I want to turn now to Afghanistan, Mr Speaker. C can I say to the Prime Minister that we support the mission and we support the timetable he has set for the end of combat operations by British troops? Now, during my visit, the commanders on the ground told me that we are bringing real pressure to bear on the insurgency. Can he provide the House with his latest assessment of the overall progress of our mission in the light of the timetable that has been set? 
I'm grateful for that. We are making progress in, in Helmand, but I think it's important not to just focus on Helmand. We have to look at the rest of Afghanistan too. If we look at where we are responsible for, Helmand itself, government authority has gone from six provinces in Helmand to now 12. That's where the Afghan government has uh, control. That's out of a total of 14. That is progress. And crucially, the increase in the Afghan National Army is on target for 171,000 soldiers by the end of this year and 134,000 police. I think the key to this is the better balance of forces we now have. There has been a surge in the number of troops and we've got a better balance between the US and the UK forces so we are more thickly concentrated in fewer areas and better able to do the job. We've set this clear timetable of saying we do not want uh, UK forces to be in combat or in uh, large numbers by 2015. I believe that is achievable, but we're going to have to work hard on training up the Afghan National Army, on pursuing a political track to reintegrate those uh, that have been involved in insurgency. And we also need to make sure that the government of Afghanistan uh, improves in the way that I know he believes too is important. Mr Speaker, it's that point about the political track that I want to pursue with the Prime Minister. Does he agree with me that setting a timetable makes it even more important that we have a lasting political settlement and one that endures beyond the departure of British troops? And does he further agree with me that an inclusive political settlement must reach out to those elements of the insurgency who are prepared to break all links with al-Qaeda, renounce violence and respect the Afghan constitution? Those are the absolutely key conditions. And to those who worry about a timetable, I would say that actually setting a timetable encourages people in Afghanistan themselves to recognise that they have to take the steps necessary to take control of their country again. So yes, we do need this political track. We need to work much harder at it. The keys are separating the Taliban from al-Qaeda, rejecting violence and accepting the basic tenets of the Afghan constitution. Those are the keys and we need to push this extremely hard so that we can do what we all want to do, which is bring our brave soldiers home at the end of this conflict. Ed Miliband. I sense, Mr Speaker, that people aren't used to this kind of PMQs, but let me... Let me finally uh, uh, emphasise to him the urgency of supporting the Afghan government in establishing that political settlement. And let me say to him that I will support him in all the efforts he makes with the United Nations, the United States and all our NATO partners on this. Can he tell me then what concrete steps he believes we can take between now and the Bonn conference at the end of the year to make this happen? Well, first of all, I'm sure he's right from all the noises off, people prefer a bun fight, but sometimes it is sensible to have a serious conversation about the issues that we face. And I know, and he knows, when you visit our troops in Afghanistan, they want us to discuss what they're doing, to discuss it sensibly and try and get it right. In terms of encouraging the political track, I think it's very important that we engage not just with the Afghan government, but also with the Pakistan government. We are not going to create a stable Afghanistan and that should be our aim, an Afghanistan that is stable enough to take our troops home without it becoming a hotbed of terrorism. We won't be able to do that unless we engage with the Pakistanis. I think that is the absolute key uh, to solving this problem and having a political track so that those who have been opposed to us recognise there is a democratic path, a peaceful path they can follow, but they have to give up violence, they have to renounce al-Qaeda before that can happen. Simon Wright.
East Anglia celebrated in October the announcement that the government had put aside the funding required to complete the duelling of the A11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the support, the support of the Prime Minister then was very much welcomed. Will he now join with me and our coalition colleagues across the region in pressing for an early start date for this scheme so the economic benefits can be delivered as soon as possible? Yeah. I think uh, all of us who visited the Norwich by-election remember how important um, the A11 is to people in Norwich. What I can tell him is that uh, we have guaranteed the funding in the spending review. We're spending over £30 billion on transport infrastructure over the next four years. Work on the A11 is an important project. The Highways Agency is now preparing a programme for how it will be delivered and construction work will start in the current spending review period. Vernon Coker. Dylan, Dylan, Scotland, Dylan Scotland is a six-year-old autistic boy in my constituency. At six years old, he's had his speech and language therapy support at his school taken away because he's too old. What does the Prime Minister think I should say to his mother, Rachel, who's absolutely outraged at the way in which this support for that autistic boy has been taken away. I'm sure the Honourable Gentleman, like anyone in this House, will work as hard as he possibly can to help that family to get the therapies that they need. And what that means is going to the County Council and arguing the case, as many of us have had to do, not only uh, with constituents, but also with our own children as well. You have to make the, the fight. We are going to be producing a paper on special educational needs, which will actually try and reform the way these things are done and make it less confrontational. Because I know as a parent how incredibly tough it is sometimes to get what your family needs. Yeah. Laura Sands. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I want to thank uh, the Prime Minister and the ministers who've been so helpful over the last 24 hours with regard to the Pfizer closure in my constituency in Sandwich. I want the Prime Minister to assure me and my honourable colleagues from East Kent that the government will do everything it can to secure the site, secure the high-skilled employees and the local economy in East Kent. I think the Honourable Lady is absolutely right to speak out about this. It is, it is depressing news. It is bad news. Pfizer's decision. My office has been in contact with them. I spoke to them again uh, this morning. There's no doubt that the decision is being taken, but not because of some UK-based issue, but because the company has decided to exit some whole areas of endeavour like allergies and respiratory diseases. The company is keeping all the options open in terms of what should happen to the site, including getting partner organisations to continue work there and to get other companies to come in. Because the fact is, it is a state-of-the-art site and it has brilliant employees doing great work there and the government will do everything it can, coordinated by David Willits and the head of the Office of Life Sciences, to try and make sure we make the best of what, yes, is a depressing piece of news. I'm very grateful, Mr Speaker. Um, can the Prime Minister confirm a report in today's Financial Times that the Deputy Prime Minister has written to him suggesting that the councils be given the power to raise their own fuel duty? And does he agree with them? Um, the Deputy Prime Minister and I write to each other and speak to each other on a frequent <laughs> uh, basis. What we, I, I think I put it like this. What we both, uh, what we both want to see is we want to see well-resourced local councils that have greater powers, greater devolution and less top-down bureaucracy than we had under the party opposite. Yeah. Nadine Dorries. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
On Friday, this Friday, hundreds of Mid Bedfordshire residents, 24 parish councils, the Master Mortain Action Group, and myself will provide a very warm welcome for the visiting members of the IPC who will be coming to make a decision as to whether or not they grant planning permission to the Cavanta huge incinerator which they wish to put in my constituency. If we are truly the party of localism, will the Prime Minister give his assurance that the draft national policy statements which will guide the IPC in their decision will be amended in order that the weight is given to the wishes of local people? If they don't want it, it should not be imposed upon them. Well, I, I thank the Honourable Lady for her question. We can actually go a bit further than that. I can confirm that in her own case, yes, the IPC will be taking representations from local people. But of course, as a government, we have committed to abolish the IPC because actually we think that it is too much of a top-down bureaucratic method. And we think there should be ministerial decisions that can take into account local opinion and be more democratically run. Elfin Fluid. Thank you much, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister share my dismay at the fact that, despite being 86% publicly owned, the RBS Bank are still dishing out huge bonuses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. May I suggest to him one course of action? It might be helpful, I don't know. Um, would he agree with me that these bankers who defy government and continue to make these grotesque bonuses should never be considered for any honours in the future? Yeah. Well, first of all, can I congratulate the right honourable gentleman for uh, his uh, new position. Uh, that's, um, that's, that's, that's probably ended his career. I'm sorry for that. Um, look, we are in discussions with RBS about this issue. We are bound by a contract that was signed by the previous government. But I'm absolutely clear what we want to see from the banks is we want to see a lower bonus pool, we want to see more lending, and we want to see them contributing more in tax to the Exchequer. I'm quite convinced that we will see all of those things from the discussions that we're having. Oh, Daniel Kaczynski. Thank you, thank, thank, thank you Mr Speaker. Uh, the local NHS Trust in Shropshire are currently proposing major reconfiguration changes in services throughout Shropshire, including maternity and paediatrics. These are causing significant concerns to local Shrewsbury doctors, GPs and patient groups. Could I ask the Prime Minister for an assurance that these concerns will be taken on board and acted upon before any changes are made? And can I say that my honourable friend, the MP for Montgomeryshire, whose constituents also use the Royal Shrewsbury Hospital, shares my views? I, I can certainly give him that assurance because my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, has put in place much stronger arrangements for making sure local people are listened to when there are these discussions taking place. So no changes will be allowed unless they focus on improving patient outcomes, unless they consider patient choice, unless they have the support of the GP commissioners. And remember, in the future health system, it will be the decisions of GPs and people that drive the provision of health services, not top-down decisions made by ministers in Whitehall. Wage freezes. Pension cuts, legal aid cuts, tens of thousands of public workers sacked, disabled, and the poor hit. How can, how can the Prime Minister justify a build up a 50 billion election war chest at the expense of these vulnerable, hard working people? All of the things that the Honourable Gentleman says about the tough decisions we've had to make about pay, about pensions, about welfare, they are all, each and every one, the consequence of the government that he spent 13 years supporting. Free 
Chris Hopkins. Thank you, Mrs. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This, uh, this week I met a gathering of ESOL students at Keithley Canvas, campus of uh, Leeds City College. Unfortunately in Keithley, sadly in Keithley, too many children start school and don't speak English. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that there is a responsibility and an obligation upon parents to make sure their children speak English? Yeah. I completely agree with my honourable friend and the fact is in too many cases this isn't happening. The last government did make some progress on making sure people learned English when they came to our country. I think we need to go further and if you look at the figures for the number of people who are brought over as husbands and wives, particularly from the Indian subcontinent, we should be putting in place and we will be putting in place tougher rules to make sure that they do learn English so that when they come, if they come, they can be more integrated into our country. And Cluid. There are 51 disabled workers in the Remploy factory in Aberdeer in my constituency. They've all been offered voluntary redundancy. They take great pride in the product they make. Two years ago, the Deputy Prime Minister pledged his support to the employ workers. What will this That was then. And in my understanding, we inherited a plan that was actually phasing out support for the Remploy workers. That is actually what we inherited. I will get back to the lady if that is not correct. But we, must, we will do everything we can to try and support and help people who are disabled into work. And that is exactly what the new benefit system and the new work programme will be all about. Any Baldry? Uh, would my right honourable friend describe the biggest structural deficit in the G7 as a golden economic inheritance. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't, and my rightable friend makes an extremely good point, which is at the weekend the Shadow Chancellor stated boldly that there was no structural deficit when Labour left office. Even though he's nodding now. Even though the Institute for Fiscal Studies could not be clearer that we had the, one of the biggest structural deficits of anywhere in the advanced world. I have to say, if you start in opposition of a position of complete deficit denial, you will never be taken seriously again. Yeah. Mr Speaker, with youth unemployment now at the highest level since records began, will the Prime Minister reconsider the decision to scrap the Future Jobs Fund? First of all, can I say how good it is to see the Honourable Gentleman back and, and well and in his uh, place. What I would say about... Um, what I'd say about youth unemployment, as I said last week, this is a problem that got worse during the boom years under the last government and then got even worse during the recession and is still, yes, a very big problem today. I don't believe the Future Jobs Fund is the answer because it was five times more expensive than other schemes. And in some places like Birmingham, only 3% of the jobs were in the private sector. It wasn't a good scheme. It's going to be replaced with better schemes. But frankly, everyone in this House needs to work together on how we tackle youth unemployment, a scourge that has got worse over the last 13 years. Zach Goldsmith. Yeah. Uh, will the Prime Minister commit to making continued support of the common fisheries policy absolutely conditional upon the end of the appalling uh, uh, phenomenon of fish discards? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my honourable friend will speak for many in this House when we say that the current regime of discarding 
fish that are perfectly uh, healthy is not acceptable and needs to change. And now we're in government, we have an opportunity to try and work to that end. Dr. William McCrae. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister, before the election, you, you came to the province and you entered into a contract with the people of Northern Ireland and promised to bring change to our economy. And in that speech, you told the people to keep the con to read the contract, keep it, stick it on your fridge, use it to hold us to account. Ten months later, we have lost four billion pounds from our capital budget with rising unemployment. Can you update this House on any progress to radically reduce Northern Ireland's level of corporation tax, bearing in mind that we are in competition with the Irish Republic that this country has bailed out recently? Well, I, I remember the visit the Honourable Gentleman mentions, and one of the things we said is that we would sort out the Presbyterian Mutual Society. And I'm proud to say that we have actually done that and delivered that important pledge to people in Northern Ireland. Everyone in Northern Ireland knows that we've got to rebalance the economy. The public sector is too big, the private sector is too small. My right honourable friend, the Northern Ireland Secretary, as looking at all of the potential for things like enterprise zones and different tax rates to try and help to bring that about. That's exactly what we're committed to. I Opperman. Pupils at my recent visit to Pontelian High School told me that apprenticeships were their number one priority. With strong ongoing local schemes already operating in the area of EGO and SCA, will the Prime Minister back the Skills for Work campaign to encourage more youngsters in the North East to take up the apprenticeships that are there? My honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this. We have made some difficult decisions in this spending round, but what we have done is actually increase the funding for apprenticeships so that we will actually be funding 75,000 more apprenticeships than what was planned under the party opposite. So we think this is absolutely vital for helping young people, not just into work for the short term, but to make sure they can have good and worthwhile careers in our rebalanced economy. Hugh Aranka-Davis. Airborne Systems in my constituency is a brilliant little world-leading company that makes parachutes, both for the UK but also internationally. However, they are in danger of being stuffed in a tender competition that is currently going on, which will cost 50 jobs that will go to a French company. They are cheaper, they are better, and there is an opportunity for the Prime Minister to intervene and allow the company to, at their own cost, put this into trial for the UK MOD. It will lead to exports as well. Stand up for well, the Honourable Gentleman makes a passionate plea for a business in his constituency, and he's absolutely right to do that. I'm sure the Ministry of Defence will hear what he says, and of course, if, if there's, I want every opportunity for British defence manufacturers to compete and succeed, and we're doing everything we can to help them. We've just been talking about apprenticeships. Uh, we're also delivering the lowest rate of corporation tax in the G7. All these things will help us to compete, take on and beat our competitors. John Glenn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Following the report in December, of, of the Right Honourable Member for Birkenhead addressing how to prevent poor children from becoming poor adults. What actions does the Prime Minister intend to take to address the central recommendation of the report that greater prominence should be given to the earliest years in public policy? The, the Honourable Gentleman is quite right, and I think it's good that the Honourable Member for Birkenhead has produced this report, and it's an excellent report, about how we try and help children out of poverty. The two most important steps we are taking is funding two-year-olds in nursery education, a pledge never made, never delivered by by the party opposite and the second thing is a pupil premium for all children who are on free school meals so that the money follows them into school they shake their heads they had 13 years to do it they never did yeah. Mr Thomas Doherty Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, there were 
There were 4,000 stillbirths in the United Kingdom last year, and obviously the pain for those families is utterly unimaginable. Will the Prime Minister give a guarantee there will be no cut in the funding into the causes of stillbirths? Well, what I can tell him is there's no cut in the National Health Service. We're actually putting £10.6 billion extra into the National Health Service during this Parliament. That is against the advice of, of many, including his own front bench. I will get back to him on the specific research that he speaks about, but I know, and every honourable member will have met constituents who've had this situation and how heartbreaking it can be and where we can get to understand more what the cause of stillbirth is. Of course, we should be doing that work. Jackie Doyle Price. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, the Auckland School in my constituency last month celebrated becoming an academy, and staff and governors at that school are delighted with the freedoms that becoming an academy has given them. Could my right honourable friend give some words of encouragement to other schools in Thurrock who are also considering taking this important step? I, I would certainly encourage all schools at looking uh, at academy status because of the extra freedom that it gives you, the extra responsibility that it gives you. And I think the evidence is now clear that academy schools, particularly those in less well-off areas, have actually transformed the results in those places. And what we've managed to do as a coalition government in the last nine months, we've actually created as many academy schools as the last government did in the last seven years. So we're making good progress with this, but we should keep up the pressure. A Comrades poll for ITV News found that 48% of the British people feel the government has lost control of the economy and the Chancellor himself has admitted that he has no plan B. Given that this government has axed the Future Jobs Fund, has trebled tuition fees and has scrapped EMAs, the question that people up and down the country are asking, has this Prime Minister even got a plan A for our young people? What, what is clear is there is only one side in this House that's got a plan at all. The party the party opposite has got absolutely no plan apart from to deny the deficit, to say there wasn't a problem and to pretend that somehow they handed on a golden inheritance when in fact we had the biggest budget deficit in, of advanced countries and an absolute pile of debt to deal with. Oliver Heald. Given the commitment of the coalition government to reinvigorate occupational pensions, would the Prime Minister welcome the launch yesterday by the National Association of Pension Funds of its Workplace uh, Retirement Income Commission, which is designed to produce proposals to improve the adequacy of pensions so that people can live with dignity and with enough money in retirement? Well, my old friend makes a very good point, which was we want to see strong private uh, sector pension provision. And I think the history over the last uh, 13 years has been depressing when so much money was taken out of the pension system, not least by the pensions tax that happened year after year, uh, proposed probably by the two people now running the Labour Party. We want to see a stronger private pension provision uh, so that people can have independence and dignity in their old age. Mr Barry Sherman. Mr Speaker, 200 years ago, the privileged people in this country managed to steal the English common land from the English common people. Why is his government returning to that kind of activity by taking away the forests and woods of our country from the ordinary people? Um, I have to say, this government is taking a completely different approach to the last government. The last government sold off forestry with no guarantees of access, no guarantees that it was free, no guarantees about habitat.
Now, of course, I'm listening to all of the arguments that are being put in this case, but I would just say this. Is it the case that there are organisations like the Woodland Trust, like the National Trust, that could do a better job than the Forestry Commission? I believe yes, there are. Is there a problem with the Forestry Commission that is both... Uh, Order. I apologise for interrupting the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister must not be shouted at. The question was heard and the answer must be heard. The Prime Minister... What I would say to the Honourable Gentleman is, is there a problem when you have the Forestry Commission that is responsible for regulating forestry, but is also a massive owner of forestry? We don't accept that with the Bank of England or with other organisations. So this is worth looking at to see if we can produce a system which is actually better for access, better for habitat, better for natural England and better for the countryside that we love. Order. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.